0: There you have it. So, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 10 today. Nehemiah chapter 10 is going to be our text for the morning. So, if you would like to find that, let's begin reading. Actually, in chapter 9, verse 38 is where we're going to pick up. It says, In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. Those whose whose seals were on the document were the governor Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. And then it goes on and on from here, and I'm going to skip them. So jump with me to verse 28. I know that's cheating, but you're welcome. Verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, the temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God... "...join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses... ...and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of the Lord our Lord." Verse 30. "...we will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons... When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. We will impose the following commands on ourselves to give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly for the service of the house of our God, the bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath and new moon offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel and for all the work of the house of our Lord. We have cast lots among the priests, Levites and people for the donation of wood by our ancestral families at the appointed times each year. They are to bring the wood to our God's house to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We will bring the first of our land and every fruit tree to the Lord's house year by year. We will also bring the firstborn of our sons and our livestock as prescribed by the law and will bring the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of our God to the priests who serve in our God's house. We will bring a loaf from our first batch of dough to the priests at the storerooms of the house of our God. We will also bring the first fruits of our grain offerings, of every fruit tree, and of the new wine and fresh oil. A tenth of our land's produce belongs to the Levites, for the Levites are to collect the one-tenth offering in all our agricultural towns. A priest from Aaron's descendants is to accompany the Levites when they collect the tenth, and the Levites are to take a tenth of this offering to the storerooms of the treasury in the house of our God. For the Israelites and the Levites are to bring the contributions of grain, new wine, and fresh oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are kept and where the priests who minister are, along with the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. And I even skipped the names, I'm still out of breath. Good grief. Okay. So, we are coming up on the back end of this series, and I thought a good way to start this, since we're going to be talking about this long document, was to put up a picture of another document. Can we go ahead and put that up here? Can anybody tell me what this document is? Somebody said it. Declaration of Independence. That's right. The reason I wanted to bring this up is because there is a very important signature on this that's maybe the most famous signature in all of history, like one of the most famous signatures. Can we put that one up there? Anybody know who that is? Oh, man, you guys do. You're so good. Uh, John Hancock. That is. Uh, can we agree that that is either the most famous signature of all time or at least one of the most famous signatures of all time? See, I... I I actually knew who that was before I started reading, and I'm definitely not a history buff, but I thought it was, was interesting that that was uh, one of the most famous, and I thought it was pertinent today because we're going to talk about another document here in just a moment. But I have a question for you. Why did John Hancock make his signature so large on the Declaration of Independence? Does anybody know? I see a couple hands going up. You just shout it out. Go ahead. Why is it so large? He was blind, somebody said. Okay, I'll just tell you then. How about that? I'm going to cough. <coughs> I hate to do that to a microphone. So I actually found this on a website that was that was intended for those who wanted more information on John Hancock. It was specifically like a John Hancock website. So I'm just going to read this quote, and it's uh, uh, it uses some language that I probably wouldn't allow my kids to use. Um, so just bear with me here. I'm not going to swear. No worries. Um, but it says, it says that he signed so large so that... And I quote, the fat old king could read it without his spectacles. That's what he said. That's, that's the quote from this site. It was all about John Hancock. He wanted to make sure that the fat old king could read it without his glasses. He wanted to make sure the king knew who it was. See, what John Hancock knew is that he didn't care who knew his name was on the document. That's not entirely true. He did care whose name, who saw that his name was on the document. He wanted everybody to know he was on board with declaring independence. He was on board with it. He wanted everybody to see it. Wanted everybody to know. And today, the reason I bring this up is because we're going to talk about another document that had a whole bunch of signatures on it. And this document, I would argue, is far more important than the Declaration of Independence. That is not an anti-patriotic thing to say. It is not. Okay? The reason I say it's more important is because it's in the Bible and it's about obeying our God. It's bigger than the United States. It's eternal. Like, this is in God's word. Okay, so I want us to see this one, and I want us to see those people who were signing on. Also, these people wanted everybody to know that they were on board and that they were dedicating their life to this God. They were giving; they didn't care who knew was, their name was on it. They were in on serving their God. And see, as I was thinking about this text and how to present this text, um, I, I've been re-listening to uh, some of y'all were at Secret Church this last year, Secret Church Twenty One, where we talked about the Great Commission. Um, and I was thinking about the way that David Platt presented that information. And some of you are thinking, oh, I don't remember how he presented it. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, so the way he broke down his, his, the entire night was he said he was going to give four truths, three problems, two conclusions, one prayer. And usually I just say, I have three whatever, and we call it good. Today, I want to show you this one document that will show us two characteristics of these people, and it's going to lead us to three commitments. How about that? I'm going to say that again because I want you to know what we're aiming at today. We're going to look at this one document, this one that we just read. We're going to look at this one document that reveals two characteristics of these people, and it will lead us to three commitments. Okay? That's the goal for the day. So I just want to go ahead and dive into these, um, and hopefully, we'll make this clear. Okay? So, this one document, what does it teach us about these people? What characteristics does it reveal about these people? First, it shows that they were unified. These people were unified in their commitment. This chapter begins with this long list of names that I skipped, I cheated. Okay? Um, There's actually 84 names over 27 verses. 84 names of people who said that they placed their seal on this document. Placing their seal on the document was the equivalent of signing the document. So they wanted to place their name on this document. And I could sit here and we could dissect each name and we could attempt to find relevance in each one of these 84 names, but I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the point at all. Instead, what I want you to see is that there was a people that came together and they were unified around this, around this commitment that they were making. They were all unified in it. And it was people from the governor Nehemiah, it was the priests, the Levites, the heads of the people. These 84 people signed this document saying, We are in agreement. We are unified in our commitment here. We are completely on board. Now, does that mean that these 84 people agreed on everything? Well, the text doesn't say, but I can say with a whole lot of confidence that the answer is no. Okay? They did not agree on everything. You know how I know that? Because they're people. I mean, there's more than 84 of us in the room, right? I guarantee you, if we get together, even though I say we agree on uh, most of the main things, I guarantee you we don't agree on everything. I promise you, because I know that. I've talked to some of y'all. We don't agree on everything. These people, uh, undoubtedly, they didn't agree on everything. So why does this matter? Well, okay, they realize here that what united them was bigger than what was dividing them they realized that what was uniting them was bigger than what, divi- what was dividing them. And they wanted to come together to make this binding agreement. But see, it was more than just these 84 people that agreed to this, right? It was bigger than that. Not just these people who we would consider um, the higher echelon people. It was, if you get to verse 28, it says, The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants. And see, now we're, now we're getting away from these, quote-unquote, from these elites, right? We're getting away from just these higher echelon people, and it actually goes a step further than that. Not only did all of these folks agree to this, but it actually goes on to say, along with their wives, their sons, and their daughters. You know who that pretty much accounts for? Everyone. They were all in this together. They were completely unified as a community. They came together to make this commitment. It actually says that it was everyone who could understand the word. Everyone who could listen with understanding. Because keep in mind what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. I just want to give you a quick refresher. We've talked about how they've been coming together for these worship gatherings, right? And they spent hours and hours and hours reading the law, reading the word, reading it out loud. And then these Levites were going out and they were explaining it to people. And as people were hearing this, they began to weep because they were convicted of their own sin. And the Levites came around and said, don't weep, but instead you should celebrate because the God who wrote this law is also a forgiving and a gracious God. So... They come around, and that's what, they've been, that's what they've been doing. So now, this entire community is coming together. They're all coming together. Everyone who could understand the word, they came together, they repented, they celebrated, they obeyed God's law, completely united in this. And church, we need to do like they did. Do we have that kind of unity where we can come together and we can say that we are unified in our commitment to our God? These people were. These people were completely unified in it. They were all in. But just what exactly were they unified in? Okay, That actually brings us to our next point. It was the people were not only unified, but the people were also committed. They were completely committed. I think a few weeks ago I told you that they were all in. They placed all their bet on their God, and they continued to display that they were committed. So this is the community of all those who could understand. And it says, and those who had separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey God's law. Their purpose was to come together and commit to obe- obeying their God. They were committing to obedience. They were so committed that they joined their 84 brothers listed in this text. And in verse 29, it actually says, The rest of the people, they join their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of the Lord our Lord. These people, you know what they were united around? I'm going to make this as simple as I possibly can. They were united around the Word of God. They were completely united around the Word of God, and they committed to it. Specifically, they say, the law of God given through Moses, the commands, ordinances, statutes of the Lord. You know where those are recorded? It's in the Bible. That's where they're recorded. And these people were expressing their commitment to it. The people vowed to be a people of the book. In other words, they would be marked by a radical devotion to God. But how would they know that they were actually marked by this radical devotion to God? It would be evidenced by their obedience to His Word. That's how it would be evidenced. It was through the evidence or through the commitment to His Word. Even if even if a lot of us wouldn't say this, okay, I'm just going to throw another hypothetical. It might be dangerous, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, so, even if we wouldn't say this, I think functionally many people believe that they can live an effective and a functional Christian life while functionally divorcing themselves from God's word. Now, again, nobody would say, well, the Bible's not important. But effectively, what do we show with our lives? That's what I'm trying to get at here. We say, yes, I'm a believer. Well, are you devoted to his word? If the answer is no, are you really devoting yourself to that God? The one who's revealed himself to us in his word. Are we really Okay, so uh, the way I started thinking about this, and I told you I was going to talk about our Dots Kids more. So um, I, got the, I got the privilege of filling in for our kindergarten teacher this week. It was, it was actually a lot of fun. Um, so I had these kindergartners that I was leading around from place to place and, and so we did our thing we went through stations and the last station we go to is our snack station um, and down there that's where they're memorizing that's where they're reciting their memory verses. Um, so I went down there the kids were eating their snacks you know they had popsicles and it was everywhere it was a mess but it was awesome um, And my kid was one of those so it was yeah, I mean, whatever it was fun um, so, to all the parents who send your kids and they come home sugared up um, sorry but not sorry um, all at the same time anyway so we were down there the kids did their thing they ate their snacks and then afterwards I remember one of the little girls she came up to me and she says I, I want to do my memory verse I was like yes all right. Let's, let me hear your memory verse. So, so she did. It was Proverbs 3.3, 3, and it said, uh, "It's don't let kindness and truth leave you. Bind it around your neck. Uh, write it on the tablet of your heart. So she starts out. I said, okay, how about this? I'll give you the first couple words, and then, uh, then you can fill in the rest, okay? So I sat down. I said, don't let. And she, she said, don't let kindness and truth leave you. And she kind of got stuck, and I pointed it. And she said, oh, bind it around your neck. Write it on your heart. I said perfect. That's on the tablet of your heart, but fine. Um, we'll give you a pass. You're in kindergarten after all. So anyway, um, I said perfect. Let's give you a gold leaf. So I started working on that. Next one was my son. Um, he came up to me and said, "I want to do my memory verse." I said, "Fantastic. Let's hear it." I said, "I'll do the same thing. I want to tell you, don't let." And he he rattled it off. I said, "Fantastic." Of course, he left out the tablet too. So we had a long, stern discussion when we got home. Um, <laughs> I hope you all know that was sarcasm. That's a joke. Um, I was very pleased with what he said. Um, so, okay, I was I was excited at this point. This third, and it was a li- he was a little guy. He comes up to me. and says, "I want to do my memory verse." I said, "Okay, perfect. I'll do the same thing with you." I said, "Don't let." And he looks at me. and goes, "What?" I said, oh, uh, "Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the first two words, and then you tell me what the rest of it is." I said, "Don't let kindness." And he goes, "What?" I said. Don't, I'm not going to tell you the whole thing. Like you got to, you got to put in some effort here. you got to memorize this, okay? And he said, no, not that one. I said, what, do you, what are you talking about? He said, I want to do the one we did upstairs. I said, okay, you mean like our theme verse, right? Which is, which is Matthew. Matthew what? 22. Ma- Matthew 22 what? 37 through 39. 37 through 39 and it's um, love the word your God. Good job. You get a, you get an A. Gold, you get a gold leaf. Um, so so I started out. I said, okay. So Jesus replied. And, and he looks at me and goes, what? <laughs> it, it, honestly, but that's... I, I, the reason I bring that up is two reasons. One, I love our DOS program. The fact that our kids are memorizing scripture. I love that. Second reason I bring that up is because that's how I feel whenever Christians think they can live an effective Christian life yet divorce themselves from God's word. I just look at him. and I'm thinking, What? What? How do you think you can live an effective Christian life whenever you don't know what the the real Christian life looks like? Where do we learn about that? It's in God's Word. So if you're not in God's Word, how can you say you're committed to the God of the Word? It doesn't it doesn't make sense. All I can do is look at you and think, what? What are we talking about here? Like that doesn't make sense at all. See, these people, these people in today's text, they knew they needed to be radically committed to God by being committed to his word. And that's what they did. They committed to his word. So they swore this written oath. In verse 29 it says, they committed themselves with a sworn oath. And honestly, in the Christian Standard Bible, I think that's a poor translation where it says it's a sworn oath. Literally it says they entered into a curse and an oath to follow God's law. In other words, they said, I'm going to commit to God's word so much so that I understand that if I disobey God's law, that means a curse for me. Whereas if I obey God's law, that's a blessing to me. And they were committing to this, saying, I know this and I'm committing to obey God's word. And they are all in here. They are all on board. They are all committing. They are promising that not only are they going to work to know God's word, they are going to work to obey God's word. So they are committing here to God's word. So these people, they, it reveals that they are both united in their commitment and that they are radically committed. Okay? So that's what it reveals about these people. Now, if we're going to commit to God's word like these people, if we're going to reveal some of these same characteristics, okay, then what exactly are we committing to? If we are committed to God's word and to building a people for the kingdom, that means that we, like these people, must be committed to these three things. So I want to show you these three commitments that we need to make, okay? First commitment, we must commit to holiness. We must commit to holiness. And I'll elaborate, okay? Why does it matter that these people, these people who were committing themselves to God and his word, they were people who, quote unquote, separated themselves from the surrounding people's? Why does that matter that they separated themselves from the surrounding peoples? Well, I think it's pretty simple. You can't say that you are committed to the Lord yet continue to disregard his commands like the rest of the people, right? How can you say, I'm I'm committed to God, but I'm going to continue doing what I want even if it's opposed to God? Is that possible? It, doesn't, it sounds illogical to me. Now, if, if I'm wrong, somebody can correct me later, but uh, it, it really sounds that way. It sounds illogical. If we are committed to God and his word, yet continue to walk opposed to God and his word, are we really committed to God and his word? It doesn't sound like it. So these people, they separated themselves. That's this idea of holiness. That's this idea of, of, of being sanctified, right? It's this, this setting apart, being different, okay? Now, there are some popular preachers, there are some very popular preachers who have written books, who have done Bible studies that are available on some of like the top-selling charts, okay, um, who have actually taught this. They have written this in books, that you can, have, you can make a distinction between Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Savior. They have made that distinction. And I will tell you, it's my understanding that that's a lie. From my understanding of the Bible, that's just not true. I don't see any place in the Bible where it says, come to Jesus and submit to him as Savior, but continue living like hell. I don't see it. Instead, what we see is people, they, they, they encounter Jesus and he, they leave radically changed. They're different. Notice that Jesus, he, he changes people. He forgives people's sins. And you know what he says? Oftentimes he says, go and sin no more. Go and be different. Not continue on the path that you were on. You're changed, so live like a changed person. These people were committing to holiness. See, these same teachers who teach that there's a difference between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord also teach that there's a difference between being a Christian and being a disciple. Uh, Okay, maybe we're getting into semantics with the words here, but I, I sure don't see that either. Because what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be like Christ, right? That's what it means to be a Christian, is to be like Christ, a disciple, you know what that is? It's a person who follows or learns from a teacher. So if we say we are a disciple of Jesus, that means that we are learning from and we are following Jesus. They're the same thing. Y'all, it's not that difficult. <laughs> Why are we making distinctions where there doesn't need to be a distinction? These are the same thing. See, God, from the very beginning, he was interested in building a distinct people from, for himself. Go all the way back to Abraham. He was interested in setting a people aside for himself. People that belong to him. Now, I want to—I want to throw out a word of caution here because I understand that what I'm talking about could get really close to legalism and saying that if we don't do this, and you're not really a Christian. And uh, okay, I want to be careful because I don't want to be called a legalist. Um, because the truth is that the grace of God in Jesus is my only hope. That's it. And I can promise you, I'm going to screw up again. I'll probably do it before I'm done preaching this morning. Uh, I'm going to screw up again. He's my only hope, and he's your only hope. The grace of God in Jesus is your only hope. However, I do believe that whenever you come to encounter Jesus, it will change you. It will change you, and there will be evidence of that in your life. Because think about this for just a minute. If we knew, if we really took a minute and we thought about what the perfect Savior of the world paid for you, how could that not leave you changed? I mean, again, just use simple logic, if you realize that you were destined to spend eternity in hell, eternity separated from God, and you realized that Jesus paid the price for you, how could that not change you? It seems illogical to me. I think it would lead to a striving for holiness in our lives. And again, that's only by the grace of God working in us. But we see that these people, they separate themselves and then we get to the oath, to this, to this binding agreement in verse 30, right? And it says, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. Okay, these people, they're promising not only to pursue holiness, but they're, they're going to try to maintain this purity. They're going to try to maintain this, this holiness, okay? That was the purpose of this prohibition against intermarriage. And in a similar way, I think as the church, we must maintain this purity by preventing intermarriage of believers with nonbelievers, believers I mean, now, that may sound obvious to some of you. It may sound obvious that a Christian shouldn't be married to a non-Christian. That doesn't make sense. Um, why, why should that happen? Like, that may sound pretty obvious, but just think about this for a minute. Just think about this for a minute, okay? I'm going to give specific instruction for just a second, because apparently this isn't all that obvious. So, if you are married, and you are, you are a believer, and you are married to a believer, great. Then husbands, love your wives. Wives, honor and respect your husbands, There's my instruction for you all today. That's hard, right? Some of you think, I don't want to do that. Well, sorry, that's what you committed to, so there you go. Uh, That's perfect because we got newlyweds in the room. Yeah, can we give them a round of applause, by the way? I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) Uh, Now that you're embarrassed, we'll go on. So, now if you're married, and you become a believer in Christ and you realize that your spouse is a non-believer. Well, here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to go read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because it has some very specific application. And this, this message isn't about marriage, but I encourage you to go read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, okay? Um, and if you have questions, talk to me later. I have opinions, right or wrong. I have opinions. Okay. So here's what I want to get to though. If you are not married, you if you are not married, I'm going to specifically apply this to our teens because I know this is especially pertinent with teenagers, and I know because I was a teenager once. Um, so if you are not married, the scriptures are very clear. Do not be unequally yoked. How many of you all have ever heard that? Most of you? Okay, good. Well, if not, you have now. Bible teaches not to be unequally yoked. If there is an unbeliever, a non-believer, who you think you should date, then you're clearly not getting the point. You are not getting the point. Do not be unequally yoked. Unmarried folks, do not date someone who doesn't know Jesus. It's pretty simple. If you see somebody who doesn't know Jesus, and you're asking yourself, should I date this person? The answer is no. You should not. Does that mean that you are unkind to that person? No. Of course not. Love them. Hope that they come to salvation. See, there's actually this sarcastic phrase that's used a lot of times with youth pastors, and I think it's hilarious, right? Uh, Some of you may have heard this. Sometimes they say, flirt to convert. Um, Anybody think that's funny? Because I think it's hilarious. Flirt to convert. Right? That is a terrible, that's a terrible evangelism tool. Don't try that. Okay? Um, really, it's just absolutely awful. Dating is not an opportunity for evangelism. It's a road that leads you to compromise and eventual apostasy, which means to walk away from faith. It will lead you to compromise. It will. And you know how I know that? Because I've read the book and it happens. You see great leaders who start off as godly people wanting to follow their God who eventually you would never even know that they believed in that God. Why? Because they were led astray by foreign wives. Over and over again, it happens. Now, let me put this on the flip side because, again, I've talked about um, dating longer than I intended to, and most of you are like, I've been married for longer and you've been alive, Jared. Okay, fine. That's fair. Here's the flip side. What should you be looking for if you're dating? Okay? Here's what I want to encourage you to look for. I want you to look for somebody who loves Jesus as much or more than you do. Look for somebody who loves Jesus as much or more than you do. And if that person doesn't fit that criteria, don't date them. There's, that's just my personal advice. That's not scriptural. That's what I think. So, there, I should probably make that caveat there. So, why is all this so important? Why is all this so important? Well, I'm so glad you asked that astute question. The answer is this it's because of what marriage represents. Why is it so important that these people maintain purity in these marriages and they don't give their sons or, or get foreign wives for their sons or give their daughters to foreign husbands? Why is that so important? Well, it's because of what marriage represents. What does marriage represent? It represents God and, God and his church. Christ and his church, that's what it represents. Marriage is this, it, literally what it is, it's this picture of separation from all other, others and a devotion to the one. How can we do that if we're not really devoted to the one? If we're saying, well, we're going to intermarry here even though they're not devoted to the one, well, it's okay. We're just going to give them a little bit. Hopefully, they'll come to know the one. No, it's a separation from all others. That's what this is. So if we're going to be devoted to God, to the one, then we cannot be united with those who are in the world, okay? So these people, they commit themselves to holiness, to purity, to being set apart, and likewise, we must commit to holiness, to pursuing holiness, okay? Okay? So, I talked about marriage and dating longer than I anticipated. So, now i got to hurry through these last few points. Second commitment. We must commit to obedience. We must commit to obedience. Okay, verse 29. Again, the people, along with this long list of names that I didn't read, they join their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of the Lord our Lord. This went beyond simple lip service saying, yeah, we believe. Yeah, we think God's law is good. It went beyond that. These people were saying that they were going to obey carefully. Obey carefully. In Hebrew, and again, I I joked with Steve a little bit this morning, because uh, are there any Hebrew scholars in the room? Good, because I'm about to mispronounce a whole bunch of words. Okay? So, Nobody can call me on it because y'all don't know either, apparently. So um, this phrase that means to obey carefully, this translated as obey carefully. In Hebrew, it's this, it's this phrase. It goes, vala valasut, vala sut. Vala vala sut. And I'm, again, butchering the pronunciation on that, okay? Um, but literally what these words mean, this vala it comes from the root word, shemor. I believe we have that one in here, okay? Now, if you want to write that down, good luck writing the Hebrew down. So there you go. Uh, but this vala okay, it comes from this, this root word, uh, shemor, which means to keep watch over or to guard. So we're gonna keep watch over or we're gonna guard, and then the second word is valasud, which it comes from the root asut, which means to manufacture something or to do something. Okay? That's, That's what these words mean. So in other words, we are keeping watch over what we are manufacturing, over what we are doing. So we are we are looking over what our lives are producing. We are looking over what is coming out of our lives, what our lives are manufacturing. Are we doing that? Are we actually examining what is coming out of our lives? These people were examining their lives to ensure that to the best of their ability, they were being obedient to the commands, ordinances, and statutes of God. That they were manufacturing obedience in their lives. Are we examining our lives that way? Asking, am I being obedient to God in this area, in that area? These people were observing carefully, obeying carefully. So, as they do this, they commit. They commit themselves to the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, right? What they were doing is trying to be obedient to God's word, to God's law, okay? So they're doing exactly what they were told. Then they also committed that they were going to leave the land uncultivated on the seventh year and cancel every debt. Why in the world did they do this? Well, again, it's in God's law. I just want to show these to you real quick. Exodus chapter 23. Uh, here's the first one it says sow your land for six years and gather its produce but during the seventh year you are to let it rest and leave it uncultivated so that the poor among your people may eat from it and and that wild animals may consume what they leave do the same thing with your vineyard and vineyard and your olive grove Um, just so you know if you're taking notes Leviticus chapter 25 says something to the same effect Okay? I'm not gonna read it because it's a little bit longer. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. It says, at the end of every seven years, you must commit or you must cancel debts. This is how you or this is how to cancel debt. Every creditor is to cancel what he has lent his neighbor. He is not to collect anything from his neighbor or brother because the Lord's release of debts has been proclaimed. You may collect something from a foreigner, but you must give or you must forgive whatever your brother owes you. My point is that these people were committed to obeying what had been written. They were committed to obeying the book. And they said, we're going to do it. That's what the book says. We're going to obey it. Okay? Now, notice what they didn't commit to. They didn't commit to doing what they felt was right. Now, that's important. I said what they felt was right. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not saying that your feelings are, have no place. I'm not trying to get to that. But if it comes down to your feelings or obeying God's law, your feelings are irrelevant. I'm sorry, they are. If you feel like you're doing something that's right, but it's opposed to what God's word says, you're wrong. You cannot be led around by your feelings all the time. Now understand, feelings are a gift from God. Emotion is a gift from God. But whenever our emotions are opposed to God's word, we follow God's word. Okay. Okay. Now, they wanted to do what was right in God's sight. So we, likewise, if we are going to be committed to the word, we must commit to holiness. We must commit to obedience. Third, we must commit to participation. We must commit to participation. Okay? Notice what the text says in verse 32. It says, we will impose the following commands on ourselves. We will impose the following commands on ourselves. In the Hebrew, literally what this says is, we will put up before ourselves these commands. In other words, they say, okay, God's law, God's word says this over here, okay? We are going to set these things up and we are committing to obeying these these things that we are setting up in front of ourselves. We are committing to going above and beyond. We're going to do these things also, okay? And they determine that they will support the work financially. We'll get to the rest here in just a minute. Everybody loves it whenever the preacher talks about money. Yeah, 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 okay. I talked about it just a couple weeks ago and I apologize because I don't talk about money often enough because God's word talks about money all the time. So we're going to talk about it too. So they determined they are going to support the work financially. Christian Standard Bible, it says an eighth of an ounce of silver is what they were going to bring. Uh, Literally, it's a third of a shekel. Eventually, this would become known as the temple tax. But in Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, the command to bring was a half of a shekel. was one half shekel. Now they're committing to bringing a third of a shekel. My question for you then becomes this. Are these people settling for a standard that is less than what God had set up? Somebody said it sound, I think I heard somebody say it sounds like it. Uh, here's, here's my understanding. Here's what, here's what I think, and you all are welcome to disagree with me, but I'm going to try to give you some kind of explanation to this. I don't think that they are being disobedient. I do not think that they are being disobedient. Instead, what I think that they are doing is practicing a good hermeneutic, uh, a good interpretive principle. Okay, They are looking for the principle in the text and applying that to themselves. I believe that's what they're doing. Okay? These people were giving to the work of the Lord in proportion to their ability. Because remember, these people who are living in Jerusalem at Nehemiah's time, these are not wealthy people. These are people who have been outcasts, these are people who have been living in exile, and they come back, and remember, they're living in rubble for years and years. These are not wealthy people. So, Nehemiah, as he sets this up, doesn't want to set up a standard that is impossible for the people to live up to. He knows that. Now, back in the time when, of Exodus, back in the time of the Exodus, these people had just left Egypt. Are they wealthy people? I would argue that they are because the Bible says that they plundered the Egyptians. These are wealthy people. So by setting a lower bar, does that mean that they're somehow like they're just settling for something less? No, they're giving a proportion to their ability. I believe that's what we're seeing happen here, okay? The point wasn't the dollar amount. The point was that they were committed to financial participation. That's a word, right? Anybody? Grammar nerds? No? Okay. Participation. They were committing to the financial participation in the work of the house of the Lord. Okay. Now, that brings a follow-up question to my mind. What is the house of the Lord? What is the house of the Lord? Okay. This time we know that's the temple, right? That's what they were bringing it to. Okay. So, what is the house of the Lord today? Please don't say me because that's only partially true. It's only partially true. Sure. We believe that whenever you come to Christ, whenever you know him and you believe in him, you have trusted in him with your life. We believe that then God sends his spirit and he resides in you. That you become the house of the Lord, right? Okay? At least in part. But me is an incomplete answer. It is, we are the house of the Lord. We are the church. That's the ecclesia, the gathering. That's what we become. We are where God chooses to reside on earth. It is with his church, the people. Okay? So What is the house of the Lord? Well, it's the church. That's where God has chosen to reside. Which means that if we are going to give to the work of the house of the Lord, we are going to give to the work of the church. That is my understanding of this text. Not only did they give their money, though. Okay, Now, I've talked about money for just a minute. We're going to come back to money in just a second. But not only did they give of their money, they gave of their time and of their resources. Okay, They worked out this system at one point to make sure that they had wood that they needed to burn on the altar. Right? Wood was an expensive commodity, but you know what had to happen for that, for that wood to be provided? Somebody had to go cut it, and they had to bring it in. These people found a system to find out who was going to give of their time and of their energy to make sure that the wood was there for the burning on the altar. These people were giving of their abilities also. Then further, they committed to bringing bread, grain, fruits, oil, wine, and I'm sure there are other things that I'm missing in this text, but uh, look, listen, I want you to give financially to the work of the church. Yes. I'm not embarrassed to say that. I want you to give financially to the work of the church. But don't stop there. Give of your time and of your energy and of your talents. Because the church is not this building. The church is the people who are sitting in this building. The church are are the body, the gathering, the community, the congregation. That's We are the church. So we need to be giving of our talents and of our time and of our resources to make, to build up the church, to encourage the church. And all of this comes in the context of bringing first fruits. Now, um, if you all wear a watch to church, you should probably not look at it right now because I'm getting later in the morning, all right? It's about to be early in the afternoon, so don't look, all right? Because I want to get through this real quick, and I don't have a lot of time, and I promise I'll be brief here, but I want to talk about this idea of first fruits for just a minute, okay? Because that's the context of bringing their resources, right? It's in the context of first fruits, all right? Where the first portion of your resources goes tells a lot about what you believe, tells a lot about what you believe. Um, Do I believe that you should tithe? Uh, The answer for me is yes. I I do believe that we should bring 10% of your income to the storerooms of the treasury. I I do. Now, some of you are thinking that's not a New Testament principle. Well, you're right, but it is a biblical principle. Um, And even if you disagree with me, we can still be in fellowship. It's okay. You're welcome to disagree with me if you don't think that that's something you are bound by. Okay, fine. But... Do I think that you should bring 10% of your income to the storerooms of the treasury? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Okay? Not in some legalistic sense where you're going to be excommunicated if you don't. Okay? But I believe that because I believe it is a blessing to be able to serve God with everything we have, including our finances. And even if you don't believe that 10% of your giving, the giving of your finances is a biblical mandate on a New Testament believer, fine. Again, I disagree with you, but fine. We can disagree on that. But I do believe, even if you don't agree with that, I still believe that it's wise to practice percentage giving. I think that's wise. And I do think that that's a New Testament principle. I'll show you. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Now about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, by the way, this is the first day of the week. Today's Sunday. First day of the week, in case you didn't get that. On the first day of the week, Each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. All right, do you all catch that? Set something aside in keeping with how he is prospering. Set something aside. Another way to say that is in proportion to how you are prospering. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like percentage giving. I would encourage you to practice some kind of percentage giving. And just so you know, 10% is not a maximum. Some of you are laughing. The preacher's telling you to give more than 10%. Uh, I don't care. There, I said it. Somebody's got bingo. I don't, it doesn't matter. Like, some of you may be called to give 20%, 30%. I've heard of some some people who give 90% of their income to the church. 90%. I'm telling, not telling you that because I think that's what you have to do. I'm not trying to set up some high, lofty standard for you to obtain some higher level of, level of holiness. That's not my point. My point is, uh, honestly, the Bible talks about where you place your treasure. That reveals where your heart is. Where is your heart? And all of this, again, it comes in the context of bringing your first fruits. Somebody sent me—I'm not going to call him out because I've already done that once today—but somebody sent me a message, uh, a sermon this week, um, and I, I don't even know the guy's name, but it was from Gateway Church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, and I thought it was a really good sermon. I thought, and he talked about first fruits. He talked about this principle of first fruits. And, and I, I'm going to use this illustration because I thought it was really good. And then I'm going to try to tie it all together and we'll be done. Okay? And he used this illustration. He said, if you made $1,000 uh, thousand dollars, and you were paid in $100 bills, so you have, how many is that? How many $100 bills is that? Ten. Ten. All right. Y'all, I went to South Old. That's difficult math. Nothing. Ah, man, y'all, you're killing me. Sorry to my South Old people. You went to South Old? Oh, so you did know that. Okay. Sorry, you, all you know. So, okay, so we must have more South Hole folks in here. That's why y'all got it. Okay, so um, neither here nor there. Okay, I'm chasing a rabbit. You no, know, you got 1100 dollars bills in your hand. 1100 dollars bills in your hand. What does it mean to give your first fruits? It means which one of those belongs to God? The first one. It's his. Now, I'm not good at math, but I know 10% of 1,000 is 100, which means that first $100 bill that you take out of your hand, who does that belong to? Belongs to God. It goes to the storeroom of the treasury. It belongs to God. Now, does that mean that you're free, you can do whatever you want with the other 90%? No, because we're told they'll glorify God with everything. Everything, including the other 90%. And so, For some of you, that might mean that you have to take the first two off and give it to the tr- storeroom of the treasury. Or you give the first one here and then you give to missions elsewhere. Wow. I, I don't know. I'm just throwing hypotheticals out. The problem is, a lot of us. Here's what we do: we get those thousand dollars, and again, I'm stealing from from the sermon I listened to this week. So this is not a Jared original. This is stealing from somebody else. He says he says this way, okay? Well, I've got a mortgage payment, so I better take those first two off and put it here. And you know what? I got a car payment, so I'm going to take the next one off. And I'm going to put it here. And then I've got I've got to pay for power and gas and all that stuff. The gas man's thinking, yeah, you better pay for gas. Um, so he throws the next one down there. Uh, maybe the next two or three down there. So he's not paying attention. Um, so That's what happens there. Don't look at them. That's not fair. So, that's where the next ones go. Then you think, well, I got to buy groceries, so that's where the rest go. Oh, well, I only have like 50 left over. Uh oh. Uh oh. That's not going to work. That's not 10% anymore, right? That's only 5%. See, that's good math, right? It's 5%. So, what now? Well, you know what the problem is? The problem is this you gave your first fruits to somebody else, you gave it to somebody else. God doesn't want your second or third fruits. God deserves your first. And He will not settle for less. Um, as a matter of fact, this sermon, the gentleman who I was listening to, he, uh, he made the comment God cannot be second. And He is right. He's not the first one I've heard say that. And He's, he's spot on. God cannot be second, God is first. Even if you don't act as if God's first, I promise you, cosmically, God is first. Treat him like he is. Honor him for what he is, which is first. First fruits come to God. And I'm not just talking about finances. That's a good illustration, but I'm talking about the first of your time, first of your energy, the first of your talents. Who do they belong to? Does the best of your talents belong to your job or does it belong to God? Does that mean that you you don't exercise those talents in your job? Of course not. Honor God in your job. Where are you giving first to? I'll, I'll just give you an example. One more. Um, I said I was going to be done. I'm lying. Um, preacher lies. Okay, there you go. Here you go. Do you read your Bible in the morning? Do you read your Bible in the morning? Now I'm not going to be legalistic and say you have to read your Bible first thing in the morning. That's not what I'm getting at. Are you giving God your best though? What I have found in my own life is if I don't get up, get around, and read my Bible, you know what happens at the end of the day? I haven't read my Bible haven't because I did not give God first. He doesn't want what I have left over. He wants first. So I'll tell you what I've done the last two weeks. I've gotten up, I've got around. I've been running. So I run and then I come home and whenever I'm actually awake, I sit down, I open my Bible and I read. That is the best of my time. That is when I am actually awake and I can focus on what God's word says. I give him first and best. Now, will I fail in that? Of course I will. Of course I will, but there's grace. But we need to give God our first. So we commit to holiness, we commit to obedience, we commit to participation. Financially, time, energy, all of it. We commit to participation. So what? Uh, I, hope, I hope that you understand that the point of this text, um, it's really that God gave us his first fruits. Even when we were not committed, Christ was committed to us. Even whenever we were not unified, Jesus was still one with his father. He exemplifies this. God gave us his first verse. He gave us his only son. You can do absolutely everything I just told you you need to do today, and if you don't submit your life to Jesus, it's not worth anything. Until you know the grace of God in Jesus, none of the rest of it matters. Okay? Okay? But the thing is, whenever you do submit to Jesus as your Savior, which means you are submitting to him as your Lord, it means that you will follow in his footsteps. You will follow him. So, Jesus was committed to unity. He made a way for you to be unified with God. He made a way for those who have been marginalized and outcast, And he brought them in and he loved them. Jesus was committed to holiness. I mean, he was the only man to ever set foot on earth and not sin. The only one. There's not another one. Jesus was it. How much more committed can you be than Jesus? You can't be any more committed than Jesus was. Jesus was committed to being obedient. He's committed to being obedient. He submitted his desires to those of his Father. Even when it was difficult, he submitted his desires to his Father to the point that he died on a Roman cross. Even whenever he prayed in the garden, he said, Lord, take this from me if it's your will, not mine, but yours be done. He was completely obedient to the Father completely committed to obedience. And he committed to participation. Not only did he give 10%, he gave everything. Everything he had. He laid his life down and he did it to glorify God and to make a way for us to enjoy his presence. So what do we do today? Well, the simplest answer I can give you is follow Jesus and be more like him. Be more like him because because as we do, we will be more committed, we will be more unified, we will be more holy, we will be more obedient, we will be more participant. That's a word, right? We will participate better. Let's say it that way. That's what we'll be. So, what do we do? We follow Jesus in faith. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. I thank you for this word, and I just want to—I just want to ask a simple favor, Lord. A, a simple question of you, Lord. I, I pray that you would come and that you would work in our hearts and our lives. So, Lord, we ask that you will—that um, you would make us more like Jesus. Uh, Father, I pray that you would even do that this morning as we consider this text as we reflect on on these folks who wanted to follow you. So Father, make us more like Jesus today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.